morning, everyone. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus. I'm really thankful uh, that you've come out today to be with us. And I wonder, uh, as we start the message this morning, if any of you recognize uh, the picture of this young man we're going to put on the screen here. His name is Jason McElwain, and J-Mac is what his friends call him. And about 10 years ago, he took the sports world by storm. If you don't remember the story, J-Mac was the team manager for a varsity boys basketball team in upstate New York. And for four years, he sat at the end of the bench in a white shirt and a black tie, handing out towels and water bottles. See, J-Mac had been diagnosed with autism when he was just a toddler, but he never let that keep him from living life to the full. And it was the last home game of his senior year when the coach decided that J-Mac was going to actually suit up and get a chance to play. And with just four minutes left in the game, that's exactly what happened. The coach called his number, and the crowd went absolutely crazy. And what happened next was unreal. I want to show you a video of what happened in the game. With 3.12 left, another chance. That third trip down the court, magic. As soon as I started hitting my first shot, I just kept shooting, and I was just hot as a pistol. Shot after shot after shot kept going in. And so what you see, if, if you remember the story, maybe uh, watch some of these videos online, at the end of the game, the student section just clears out, and they rush the floor, and they lift J-Mac up on their shoulders. It, he, with four minutes left in the game, he landed... Uh, six three-pointers and uh, scored 20 points total to lead all scorers. The kid went from handing out towels to winning the ESPY award for the best moment in sports. How many of you remember that from, from several years ago? Yeah, and it's a great story, and we all love stories like that, don't we? Don't we love to hear a story about someone beating all the odds and accomplishing great things? Well, this morning, we're going to start a new series, uh, as Cameron alluded to, called Courageous Faith. And we're going to look at three stories from the Old Testament that in a lot of ways are like J-Mac's story. They're stories of unthinkable odds, seemingly undefeatable enemies, and an underdog who rises up and accomplishes the impossible. But what I hope you'll see in each of these stories is the God who is working behind the scenes. Because it's that very same God who we can turn to today and put our faith in today. And that's great news, isn't it? Because the battles are still very real for us today. I mean, let's face it, to be a Christian, and I mean to, to really strive to think and to act and to love like Jesus, it's a battle, isn't it? It's an absolute battle in, in the mind to choose the right thing. And, and sometimes it's a battle on the outside, possibly someone coming against you for what you believe. Because walking as Jesus walked, it's, it's not always a popular way to live, is it? And so the reality is we need courageous friends. We need friends who will courageously speak the truth uh, with love, no matter what. And we need courageous students who will do the right thing when no one else is. And we need courageous parents who will go against the norm and who will raise their kids to love and to serve the Lord. We need courageous teachers and coaches who will be a light in our schools. We need courageous businessmen and businesswomen who will pursue integrity when no one else is. And in case you didn't find yourself in that very short list, let me assure you, we need you. 
God wants you to live with courageous faith, to be a person of courageous faith. And I am praying that as we move through these stories, that you will open your eyes to the opportunities around you to speak boldly, to love sacrificially, and to share courageously for the glory of God. And so to begin today, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there are some under the chairs around you. This is on page 169 of those Bibles. But in Judges chapter 6, we find the story of Gideon. Now, some of you may recognize that name, Gideon, and you may be thinking this is the story about how all the Bibles ended up in all the hotel rooms. It's not, okay? That's a different story. It's not that Gideon. All right, strike that for second service. The story of this Gideon actually takes place around 1160 B.C., Uh, and this is during a time that was known as the time of the Judges. Uh, hence the name of the book of Judges. And it's important to note that a judge in this sense, in, in this Old Testament biblical sense, is not what we think of today. When we think of a judge, we think of, uh, of someone in a black robe behind a, a bench with a gavel in their hand, right? That's a judge. But when you hear that word in the book of Judges, I want you to think more of a rescuer or a defender. It's the person who God raised up to defeat Israel's enemies. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that there's a, there's a cycle, there's a pattern that takes place over and over as you read. And, and the pattern goes like this. Step one, Israel turns its back on God. Step two, God turns Israel over to her enemies. Step three, Israel cries out and begs God to save them. And step four, God raises up a judge to save Israel from her enemies. And unfortunately, right then the cycle begins again. And you read it over and over again in the book of Judges. That Israel turns its back on God. God gives them over to their enemies. Israel begs God to save them. And then God sends a judge to rescue his people. So in Judges chapter 6, here's what we read in verse 1. It starts off by saying, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So right there, we see the cycle beginning, don't we? Israel did evil. God gave them over to their enemies. Verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So they were hiding. The Israelites were were going up into the mountains, and they were hiding in caves, trying to to stay safe, stay away from the Midianites who were oppressing them. Verse 3 says, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts, and it was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So what we see here at the beginning of Judges chapter 6 is a picture of absolute cruelty on the part of the Midianites. They weren't coming into Israel to steal. They weren't coming in to take the land. They weren't coming in to conquer. Verse 5 says they invaded the land to ravage it. They were simply coming to destroy everything so that Israel would have nothing. The goal was to inflict as much pain as possible and to keep the nation of Israel on its knees. And with nowhere else to turn, verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. 
So true to the cycle that I laid out for you a minute ago, Israel now begs God to save them. They've, they've turned their backs on God. God turned them over to their enemies, and now they're crying out to the Lord for help. But I want you to realize we've just covered seven years in the first six verses of Judges chapter 6. Seven years, if we can, we can do it ourselves, we know a better way. Seven years, if we can handle this on our own. And seven years of oppression because they had turned their backs on God. And I just wonder this morning, have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a, an extended season of, of separation from God? And maybe it was because of a choice uh, that you made a long time ago or, or maybe even just because we live in a broken world and something happened and, and, and you didn't know how to process it and you walked away from God. Things got tough and, and this morning maybe you find yourself beat up and worn out with nowhere else to turn. And I want you to know that we serve a God who is waiting for us to cry out to him. He is waiting for us to turn back to him and to call on his name. He is a rescuer. And maybe that's part of displaying courageous faith for you this morning, just acknowledging my way isn't working. And I, and I want to call on the Lord for help. I want you to keep that in mind as we continue reading because that's what Israel did. And I want to jump down to verse 11. We're going to skip big portions of the life of Gideon. His life is covered in three chapters in the book of Judges. So we're just going to catch snippets as we move through. I encourage you to read the whole story later on for yourself. But in Judges 6, uh, verse 11, we're going to see God's response to Israel crying out for help. And we're going to meet his chosen judge. It says this. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joah. The Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, pause right there. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, and this is strange. Uh, most of you probably know that a, a wine press is a big vat or a big tub where during harvest uh, they would bring all of the grapes and they'd put them in there. And they would have people in the vat walking around, squishing the grapes with their feet, squeezing the juice out. And that juice would flow and be captured into containers where it could ferment and become wine. And I just have to say, that's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, that is gross. Wine squeezed between someone's toes. That sounds like a Dateline exclusive to me. You know, uh, the headline being, Grape Juice Plant Shuts Down After Discovery of Toenail in Juice Box. I mean, that's, that's horrible. But that's how they did it. So Gideon's in this wine press, but he isn't making wine. It says he's, he's actually threshing wheat. And, and so he's taking stalks of wheat, and he's beating them on the ground to separate the kernel from the chaff. But this is very strange, because you would normally thresh wheat out in the open, where the wind could come and help, and to collect that chaff and to blow it away. So it's extremely unusual that he's doing it in this wine, wine press. But Gideon's afraid. It tells us that he's in there because he doesn't want the Midianites to take his wheat. He, he's afraid. He's trying to hide it from the Midianites. He's just trying to get something to eat for himself, maybe for his family. Verse 12 says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, doesn't that seem strange to you? I mean, here's Gideon hiding in a wine press, terrified of the Midianites, and the angel calls him mighty warrior. And the angel continues in verse 6. He says, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And Gideon replies, Pardon me, my Lord, but how can I save Israel? 
My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Now, Gideon was born in a town called Ophrah. That's where this angel has come. It said, under the oak in Ophrah. And in Hebrew, that word literally means the place of dust. And so Gideon's saying, you know what? You've got the wrong guy. I'm from dirt town. Mighty warriors don't come from dirt town. And on top of that, I'm the weakest guy in my whole family. You've got this all wrong. But in verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you. I will be with you. And right there is the peace that makes all the difference. See, because Gideon was evaluating what he could do in his own strength, wasn't he? And isn't this still often true for us today? Listen to me on this one. The reason many of us resist God's promptings to move forward in courageous faith is because we're evaluating the outcome based on our strength, based on my wisdom, based on my giftedness or the lack thereof. But what we're going to see today is that God loves to use the weak things to shame the strong. He loves to use the unwise to shame the wise. So I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. Don't accept the title of weakling if God has called you warrior. Don't accept the title of weakling if God has called you warrior. He's not evaluating your strength. He's offering you his. Don't miss that. So the Lord says to Gideon, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. But the truth is, before he goes to fight the enemies of Israel, God has a task for Gideon at home. And remember, the reason the Israelites were being oppressed was because they had turned their back on the one true God, and they were worshiping all of these false gods. So jump to verse 25. It says, That same night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So why does God tell Gideon to do this? Why is this an important next step for him? Well, first, I think God is reminding Gideon of the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, Gideon, I want your complete allegiance. I want to see that you are all in with me. I want total loyalty. I want to be your one and only God. And the truth for Israel was they hadn't just completely moved to worshiping idols. They were kind of trying to blend a worship of the one true God with all of the other gods of the nations that they were supposed to have driven out of Israel in the first place. And they were kind of coming up with this mixed religion. And God says, no, I want to be your one and only God, the only one in your life. But there was also a relational element to this because Gideon's dad built that altar. Did you hear that in the text? His dad was the one who had, who had put up this altar in the Asherah poles where the people would have worshiped. And there would be a huge relational consequence for Gideon for destroying these things. But before he can become a mighty warrior on the battlefield, Gideon's got to put some things in order at home. And maybe it's a good time to stop and just ask, you know, is there anything in your life right now that maybe God wants you to deal with ahead of the battle? Is there anything that you know isn't pleasing or honoring to the Lord? But, but to correct course, it's going to mean trouble. You know, it might mean some resistance. It might mean some friction. It might even cost you dearly. 
And honestly, it's probably just easier to continue on without rocking the boat. But I can tell you from experience that God almost always challenges us to personal obedience before he uses us in a mighty way. What God is asking you to do, it may be painful, it may be humbling, and it may not make sense to the people around you. But know that when God calls you to personal obedience, it's often to get you ready for the battle ahead. And that's what he was doing in Gideon. And as you read on, you'll find that Gideon was obedient to the Lord. He tore down that altar. He cut down those Asherah poles. He destroyed it all, and he, he offered the bull to the Lord. And the people wanted to kill him for it. But his dad steps in. His dad goes to bat for him. And, and honestly, soon the people have a much bigger problem on their hands. Because in verse 33, we read, Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So here they come again. Just as they had for the last seven years, the, the crops likely have grown. They see that it's time to go in and destroy everything again to continue pushing Israel to their knees. And verse 34 says, But then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they went up to meet him. So we see Gideon rallying all of the people, as many people as he can, to unite, to come out and to fight. And he does, and doesn't seem, something seem very different now from the man who he found hiding in a wine press, terrified. Because now he's blowing a trumpet. He's not making excuses. He's taking charge. He's ready to fight. And what is it that's changed inside of Gideon? Well, I have to believe it has everything to do with that statement in verse 34. It says, the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. From the original language of Hebrew, it literally translates, the spirit clothed himself with Gideon. And you can almost picture Gideon as a robe being put on around the spirit of God. The spirit was in Gideon. He was driving Gideon, directing him, giving him courage. And what we see in the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit of God would come on specific people for specific times or, or a specific task, but then he would leave. The Spirit would come and he would go. But the reality for followers of Jesus today is that the Holy Spirit comes to stay. That's why Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, it's actually better for you if I go away because when I go, I'm going to send my spirit. And where I was with you a lot of the time, I was with you most of the time, the spirit's going to be with you all the time. And he's going to convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so it's better for you that I go away. And it's that same powerful spirit of God that came on Gideon that is alive inside of followers of Jesus today. It made all the difference for Gideon then. I believe it makes all of the difference for us now. I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to it. But we see that Gideon has assembled a mighty army. But in Judges chapter 7, something surprising happens. Look at, look at what happens next, starting in verse 2. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. You have too many men. I, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. 
So we see that 32,000 men had responded to Gideon's initial call. And 32,000 sounds like a lot, but remember, there's 135,000 Midianites that they're about to go up against. So this army was outnumbered almost five to one right from the get-go. But then God says, you know what, those odds are too good. And uh, Gideon, that's too many men. I don't want the people thinking they did this on their own. So Gideon says, you know what, if you're afraid, you don't have to stay. And immediately, more than two-thirds of his army, they walk away. And Gideon is left with 10,000 men. So now we're down to one Israelite to fight every 14 Midianites. And that would have to be a miracle, right? I mean, we're not talking modern warfare with with guns, with modern weapons. We're talking men with swords and and clubs and, and shields. And it really was a numbers game back then. But God's not done yet, even with 10,000 men. In verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. And what we read in the following verses is a test based on how the men drink. So Gideon has them drink, and he's to watch to see who scoops up water and kind of laps it out of their hand as a dog, and who gets down on their knees and and drinks on their knees. And those who are are on there, who lap up the water like a dog, those are the men that he gets to keep. 300 men did that. So just 300 men now to take on 135,000 Midianites. And remember, the Lord did this to show that it was by his strength. He didn't want Israel able to look and say, look at what we did. You know, no one but the Lord could take credit for 300 men defeating 135,000 men, right? So so now they're ready for battle, yeah? Actually, it gets worse. In verse 16, we read, Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. So I want you to, to just think for a minute. You're, you're one of the guys who has stayed. You're in the army. You've watched your unit go from 32,000 men down to 10,000 men and then down to 300 men. And now you're ready to march against the Midianites. And instead of giving you a sword, your commander hands you a trumpet and a jar with a torch in it. I mean, wouldn't you be thinking, Gideon's out of his mind. What am I going to do? Play him some smooth jazz and... Maybe take up a collection in the empty jar. I mean, this is just insane. But the fact is, God not only uses unlikely people, he also uses unlikely plans. Because look at what happens in verse 20. It says, the three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. So they made this big commotion. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran. They were crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the Midianite army fled. And as you read on, you find that all of Israel was called to pursue them, to pursue the fleeing Midianite army, and none escaped. Just 300 men were able to defeat an army of 135,000, and they never raised a sword. And what the Lord promised Gideon, the man from Dirt Town, hiding and afraid, he fulfilled it. And Gideon went down in history as the mighty warrior that God called him to be. So what does this all mean for us today? I mean, this story happened over 3,000 years ago. Why in the world would this still be a relevant story for us to look at and to study today? 
I want you to write something down in your notes. It's a phrase from Pastor James McDonald, and I think it sums this whole thing up for us. Here's the phrase. Ordinary you, extraordinary God. Ordinary you, extraordinary God. I want you to write that down. Because Gideon's greatest attribute was not that he was a mighty warrior. Because he wasn't. Not until God gave him that title. He was just an ordinary guy from an ordinary family in an ordinary town. You ever feel that way? I mean, nothing spectacular. I'm just, just ordinary. No, Gideon's greatest attribute wasn't that he was a mighty warrior. It was that he did what God asked him to do, even when he knew it could cost him. And we saw that when the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, something changed for him. Something new was driving him. And it was God who carried him through all of these uh, extraordinary circumstances all the way to victory. An ordinary Gideon experienced the power of an extraordinary God. And it's true for us too today. Here's the key. It's Zechariah 4.6. And it says this, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. James McDonald sums it up like this. He says, if God uses us, it's not about what we bring to the table at all. The extraordinary thing is always, always, always God. Ordinary you, extraordinary God. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's about our extraordinary God who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so as we bring this to a close, I want you to think right now, what is it that you're up against? And we talked earlier about the fact that these battles, they're just, they're kind of continuous. What, what would you identify in your life as the battle right now? Is there something that, that is so terrifying, so crippling, that maybe like Gideon, you'd like to just find a hole in the ground and hide? What is it? Maybe it's a, a situation at work. Could be a tough relationship situation that you're in. Uh, maybe it's even in your own home, someone standing against you. Could it, could it be a health situation? Or maybe a big decision that needs to be made, but it just seems like there's no good choice. What is it for you right now? What is that battle? And as you've likely worked through all of the scenarios and all of the ways that this might play out, is it possible that you have missed the most important piece of the puzzle? Because the natural response is that we would estimate, we would evaluate based on our own strength and our own giftedness and our own wisdom and try to, to figure out what's going to happen based on those things. But Zechariah tells us, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I just want to remind you this morning that if you are a follower of Jesus, his Holy Spirit has been given to you. He lives inside of you. He is guiding you. He is convicting us of the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do, and why it matters. And perhaps it's time for you this morning to step out in courageous faith and to know that no matter what you're up against today, tomorrow, or 40 years from now, that when the odds seem impossible, that we remember that we serve an extraordinary God. Ordinary you, extraordinary God. That's the story of Gideon. And I think it's the story of you and me as well. I'd like to give you some time to, to pray and to evaluate uh, where you are with all of this. And I want to invite you to, to close your eyes, to bow your heads. And I just want to ask, do you find yourself far from God this morning? Maybe feeling beat up, feeling worn out, feeling like there's nowhere left to turn for help. 
Why not confess that this morning? Maybe pray a, a prayer to God, something like this. God, I've tried it my way and my way isn't working. I'm done fighting you. I need you to rescue me. I surrender to you this morning. If you've prayed a prayer like that or if you pray a prayer like that for the first time this morning and you're ready to surrender your life to Christ, I'd love to talk with you more after the service. And we wanna help you on your journey ahead. I invite you to come up to the front. I'll be here, our prayer team will be here. But I imagine there's others here uh, today who've already surrendered to Christ, but in the battle, man, it's hard to keep our eyes focused where our eyes need to be focused, isn't it? And maybe you're evaluating the outcome of your situation based on something other than the Lord's strength. And for you this morning, maybe it's just uh, readjusting where you're looking. Maybe it's just confessing to the Lord, God, if I've been operating, I've been evaluating on my own strength. I believe that, that I have to be strong enough, I have to be smart enough, great enough, and the reality is I'm not. And again, I, I just remind you that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. His powerful Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So Lord, we pray that you would find us this morning listening for your Spirit's voice and responding in obedience. Father, don't let us settle for weakling when you have called us warrior, not by our strength, not by our might, but by your spirit, Lord. Guide us, give us courageous faith in our relationships and in our work and in our homes and our parenting in all of our lives, Father, that we would bring you much glory. It's your glory we're after because you are an extraordinary God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. posture of our hearts uh, as we sing this song together. So you can stay seated and um, you can stand if you want to, however you feel led, but um, just really just continuing that prayer that Ben just led us through uh, as we sing this song.